All right, turn in your Bible to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. As we've just sung about together, we're going to be continuing this study of God's law. And in today's day and age, it's a real easy kind of thing to question, why would we bother studying God's law? Well, maybe one good way to think about that is, why would the psalmist write about it? And that's what the whole psalm is telling us, is why he wants to praise God's law. And he's telling us how God's law is his standard, it's his comfort, it's the promises that he has as a foundation for his life. And all of that is reason for us to study it and to learn it and to know it and to appreciate it as well. And so the challenge this morning for you is, listen to what God has to say about his law and take it to heart. Each verse that we look at is something that in some way can be applied to your life. So listen to what God has to say. We, we read earlier in the Psalms about the voice of the Lord. Well, the voice of the Lord comes to us this morning through his word. By the power of his spirit, he can help us to understand it. And when we read something about the law of God that might seem distant and outdated and hard to understand, God's Spirit can help us understand exactly what he wants us to know for our life today about his law. And so it's important for us. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 128 through 1, excuse me, 121 through 128. And we just sang these verses together. And if you remember the way that Psalm 119 is organized, it's in groups of eight verses and it walks through the Hebrew alphabet. And so each letter of the Hebrew alphabet gets eight verses that start with that letter of the alphabet. And so these eight verses kind of hang together this morning. So we're going to spend the first half of the message looking at Psalm 119, 121 through 128. And then the second half, we're going to look at a particular case law example to help us how does this law that seems very distant and kind of outdated for us today. How does this law actually apply to our lives today? How do we understand it? What is it communicating to us ultimately about Jesus? That's what we want to see as we dig into God's word. So let's go ahead and read Psalm 119, 121 through 128, and just follow along as I read. I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. Verse 121, I've done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Those words there, just and right, it's, it's literally saying, I have done justice and I have done righteousness. Justice is the law itself. I've done what the law has said, and righteousness is acting on the law. So I have lived in holiness. And this, when you, when you can say that like the psalmist, then that leads to having a good conscience. Proverbs 15, verse 15 says, All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. 
cheerful of heart here is a good heart, a heart that has a right conscience because it has acted in justice and righteousness. So all the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. When you have lived according to God's law and you have a good conscience because of it, that's like a continual feast that you get to enjoy. And then based on his loyalty to God, he says, I've done this. I've, I've done justice and righteousness. He asks for God's deliverance in his life. Don't leave me to my oppressors. Verse 122 says, give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. So the psalmist is oppressed by the insolent, the proud, and he asks God for a sign, a token, a pledge that God will do him good. In other words, he's saying, even if complete deliverance from this oppression doesn't come right away, at least give me a sign that you are on my side, that you will deal with this someday. Give me a pledge, a sign. God knows what we need and he knows when we need it. I appreciated the comments of the Puritan Thomas Manton on this. Let me just read you a couple of things he says. He says, the shepherd must choose our pastures, whether lean or fat, bare or full grounds. The child is not to be governed by his fancy, but the father's discretion. Our will, he says, is not the chief reason of all things. In other words, we need to trust God in his sovereignty, in his wisdom. So he says, if things were in our own hands, we would never see an ill day. Right? If, you were, if you were making the decisions, you wouldn't choose days of affliction. Right? So we would never see an ill day. And in this mixed estate, in other words, in this life where we still have a sin nature, but we also have a, a new spiritual nature, he says, in this mixed estate, that would not be good for us. But all weathers are necessary to make the earth fruitful, rain as well as sunshine. And then he points out, he says, though Jesus loved Lazarus, yet he abode still two days in the same place when he heard he was sick. It is not for lack of love if he does not help us right away, nor lack of power. Christ may dearly love us and yet delay to help us, even in extremity, until an appropriate time comes where his glory may shine forth and his mercy be more conspicuous. So if you're facing affliction, you're in a time of difficulty and you're asking God to help, if you don't see the answer right away, it's not because he doesn't love you and it's not because he doesn't have the power to deal with it. It's because he'll do it when the time is best. He'll act in his sovereign wisdom. So give your servant a pledge. What pledge would God give? Another word for a pledge is a surety. It's a word we don't use real often, but a surety is a person who stands in for a debtor to ensure that the creditor will receive payment. Well, our great dilemma, the greatest dilemma that we all face is the weight of our sins and we can't stand under that weight on our own. It's too much for us to bear. So we're in desperate need of somebody to deliver us from that affliction. Somebody to be a surety for us to ensure that our sin debt before God will be paid. Spurgeon points out, he says, this verse is the only verse in the whole psalm that at first glance doesn't seem to be talking about God's law or God's word in some way. But, Spurgeon points out, the Bible teaches us that Jesus is our surety and he is the word 
He's the fulfillment of the law on our behalf. Hebrews 7, tells us that as our great high priest, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. He's the surety of a better covenant. And he's our surety in two ways. Number one, he paid our sin debt. And number two, he ensures that we will keep God's laws. We, we have the, the standing of being a law keeper because we're dressed in the righteousness of Christ. And he gives us the spirit who teaches us how to obey God's law. And, it, and we can have confidence in that because if Jesus has paid your sin debt and if God is just, God will never exact the same payment twice. He will never demand the penalty for the same sin twice. If Jesus has paid your sin debt, then it is paid. And you can have confidence in that. He is our surety. So Jesus is the sign that God gives that our sin debt is paid. He's the word. He's the word of hope. He's the word of promise. He's the word of payment on our behalf. Verse 123, my eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. This verse is very similar to what we saw in verse 82. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. I'll just refer you there for more details. But briefly, what is the psalmist saying here? The object of his faith is God, the salvation that God gives. That's what he's looking for. But the weakness of his faith is described in that his eyes are failing. The ground of his faith is the word of God's righteousness. It's his righteous promise. Now, what a man hopes for, he will look for. Okay? What you hope for, you will look for. Psalm 121, 1 and 2, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. What you're hoping for, you will look for. And he says, my eyes are weak, right? My eyes are failing, but I know it's your righteous promise. My eyes long for your salvation. Verse 124, deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. Steadfast love here is that word chesed. It's used all over the place in the Bible. It's God's covenant love, his mercy, his grace, his faithfulness to his people. Why does the psalmist not ask for God to act toward him in justice? Well, we don't want God to act toward us in justice justice apart from Christ, because then we'd have to pay the penalty for our sin. See, we, we have to appeal to God's mercy, and we actually, our hearts find more rest in appealing to God on the basis of his mercy than on the basis of justice. Mercy is what gives us the certainty of salvation, and it's by definition something that's undeserved. And even what you see here, the psalmist says, teach me your statutes. The very fact that God teaches us is itself an act of mercy. Even when God has shown you his mercy and grace, you still need to obey his law. We're not redeemed from obedience to the law. We're redeemed from the curse of the law the penalty of the law for disobedience. And the goal of redemption is not to free us from obedience to God's law, but to enable us to obey it. 
Thomas Manton, again, writes, he says, for our ruler to become our teacher is an act of great grace for which we cannot be too grateful. God teaches us by his spirit how to obey his law. And that teaching is in and of itself merciful and gracious to us. And I'll just point out one last thing here about this verse. As you think about this, when he says, deal with your servant according to your steadfast love, your mercy, that's the past. God deals with us in mercy regarding our past sins. Teach me your statutes, that's for the future. So mercy deals with past sins. Teaching deals with future obedience. So it's past and future. It's the whole of life that's in view here. Verse 125 then, I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. He calls himself God's servant. Now we would much rather think of ourselves as God's sons. And that's true. We are God's sons, but we're also servants. Think about the example that we have in Jesus. Jesus is the son of God, but he also came as a servant. We are sons and servants. And if we are truly God's servants, then we're not our own masters. Just think about that for a minute. We like to think of ourselves as our own masters. But if we are servants of God, then he is our master. And the psalmist here says, give me understanding that I may know. He, he wants to understand and know God's testimonies. God's testimonies are superior to the testimony that's borne by anyone else. I think oftentimes we as Christians can trust the testimony we get from Fox News or from Facebook or something else a lot more quickly than we trust the testimony of God's law that he's given us in his word. And we need to be running there to find a sure testimony before we go anywhere else. Verse 126 is a little bit different from the flow of what we've seen here. He says, it is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. It's right and good for God to act in justice to judge those who break his law. How does God's law get broken? Well, it gets broken when we defy God and his authority. You may think of Pharaoh. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And there's plenty today who take that mindset. Some in the church do it in different ways. There was a, um, an early church heretic named Marcion who basically said that grace and love come from the true God. The law was given by an evil God. And we can hear a description like that and go, well, that's ridiculous. But oftentimes, isn't that almost how we think of God's law? We view it as restrictive and inferior, but... You know, Paul, as he unfolds the gospel in the book of Romans, he's, in chapter 3, he's talking about how we are justified by faith. And then he says this in verse 31. He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Faith and law work together. We're never saved by law. But the law does reveal to us, if we have faith in God, how we should live in obedience to him. And disobedience to that is really kind of the other way of, of breaking God's law. Even when we acknowledge God with our words, oftentimes our actions deny God's law or break God's law. 
But here the psalmist says, it's time for the Lord to act. Do you ever look around and feel that way? You think, God, why don't you intervene and stop this, whatever it is, from going on? But God, in his wisdom, knows the perfect time to deal with it. In Genesis 15, uh, God says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete or full. And so he's telling um, his people that they're going to come back in four generations, and then it'll be full, and then it'll be time to kick them out. So it's not that God's unaware, but there comes a point where the iniquity of a land is full or complete, and it's time for God to act. One example of a time when man's wickedness is full is when unnatural sins become commonplace. So if you read Leviticus 18, it catalogs a lot of unnatural sins, things like homosexuality. And it's saying that that's destructive of a society. And so when that becomes commonplace, it's time for God to act. And I would say, in our society, we're certainly well on our way there, if we're not there already. Now, as you read God's law, there are certain categories of unnatural sins that have not yet, at least, you know, as of this morning, become normalized. Give it a week. We'll see what happens. But God knows when the time is right for justice. He knows when the, the iniquity or the, the sin of a land is full and he will act. And so if in our society God's judgment is beginning, then that tells us that the time of our iniquity is filling up. But if it doesn't happen yet, if he withholds that judgment, if he continues in mercy for a time, then that iniquity is not yet full. It doesn't mean it's not bad, but God is sovereign and wise and he will act in the appropriate time. But it's, you know, it's interesting to me as you read a verse like this, it helps me to realize that it is right and appropriate for God's people to ask God to judge the wicked. Why should we pray for God's judgment on the wicked? Calvin gives us a couple of reasons. He says, because the wicked influence the simple and ignorant towards sin. That's one reason. Because when the wicked are acting in this way, it causes the word of God to be thought ill of. And he says, because when the wicked are allowed this unrestrained behavior, it's occasion for liberty to be given to evil in general. And so it's appropriate for God's people to pray for God's judgment on the wicked. God may bring revival and restoration. That's entirely possible. Spurgeon kind of um, alludes to that. He says, look, when, when God created the world, when he brought order out of you know, what was there, it was, it was chaos. I don't mean chaos in the sense that God created something bad, but as you read the description, the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and, and the Spirit brought order out of that, brought beauty out of that. God does that kind of thing. And so if our society is a society where it's formless and void, it's in, in other words, it's in chaos, it's ugly, God's Spirit is perfectly capable of bringing beauty and order out of that. So God can bring revival and restoration. He can do that in a society if he chooses to. If you are to pray for the Lord to act, to judge the wicked, how would you know if your heart was in the right place? 
Thomas Manton gives a little checklist for your heart. He says, first, be sure that your cause is good and your adversaries are evil. Second, use all means to seek their salvation, right? Love your enemies. Pray for those who do you evil. And third, be sure that your motive is God's glory, not your own interests or vengeance. And if those things are in place, then it is appropriate for us to pray like the psalmist does here. Verse 127 then, he says, Therefore I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. There are a lot of substitutes that draw our hearts away. The probably the main two would be pleasure and profit. Those things tend to draw our hearts away from God and his word. Psalm 19, we read this morning, verse 10, speaking of God's laws and his rules, it says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. You want true profit, true pleasure, it's in God's word. The profit and pleasure of this world, though, often grabs our attention and pulls it away. Proverbs 8 And this is wisdom speaking here in Proverbs 8, verses 10 and 11. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. And I think as American Christians, if we look at where we spend our time and money, how much of it is dedicated to our own enjoyment and entertainment. Paul, as he wrote to Timothy, He says in 2 Timothy 4.10, he says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. And I would say over the course of years in ministry, I've seen that. I've seen people whose hearts are pulled away. Other things, the things of the world become more important. There's other priorities. The word of God and gathering with his people drops down the list and Our hearts are tempted in those ways. Jesus told stories about this. Matthew 13, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. It's that single-minded purpose of pursuing God's kingdom. And we need to have that kind of resolve. It's a resolve to obey God's commandments, that I'm going to live for him. That kind of resolve to obey him means determining that I'm going to obey God's word no matter what men say. So Peter and John, as they're preaching the gospel in the book of Acts, Acts 5, we see that they're commanded not to teach in Jesus' name. And their response is, we must obey God rather than men. If we're going to have that kind of resolve, we also need to realize that it means hard work. Working to study God's word. Jesus says in John chapter 6, he says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. There is a food that endures to eternal life. We find that in God's word. Jesus says, you're going to have to work for that. He says, don't work for the things of this world. Work for the things of eternal life. If you're going to resolve to obey God's word, there's going to be work involved. And that kind of resolve to obey God's word means a choice, and it's a daily choice. It's over and over again. 
Joshua is a great example of this at the end of his life. Chapter 24, he's speaking to the people of Israel and he says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And then he finishes with this. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the kind of resolve that we need to have. Dads, in particular, as you, re, as you lead your family, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. No matter what those around us are doing, no matter what the temptations are that are going to pull us away from it, we resolve to serve the Lord. I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. And then our last Verse in Psalm 119 this morning, verse 128. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. There's a little bit of a translation issue in this verse. And our English versions, in an effort to make it readable, I think kind of obscure something that's there and leave it out a little bit. Because in Hebrew, um, there's, there's much fewer words in Hebrew. And you have to kind of supply a lot of the verbs and stuff as you go. Well, literally, this is consider all precepts all. The word all is in there twice. And so the older translations kind of supply what they think that means, which is I consider all your precepts concerning all things to be right. And I think that's helpful. I think that's probably what the psalmist is getting at. So we have to believe all of God's word and it relates to all of life. The rich young man in Mark 10 came to Jesus and he found what Jesus was saying to be worthy of inquiry, but it wasn't worthy of commitment. He left. And many of us today would be content with God's law in the places where it doesn't contradict or challenge us. But God's law hangs together as one piece. It's like links in a chain. There's no optional or extra laws involved. It's kind of like what God says about marriage. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. You don't break out God's law into, you know, this piece that I like and that piece that I don't like. And God's law is good. It's good for a man. It's good for a society. It's a good thing. Listen to the description in Deuteronomy 4. As Moses writes this, this is verses 5 through 8. He says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Okay, so he's talking about the laws and the rules. He says, Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who... When they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? God's law is good. Good 
even such that if God's people would obey it and live that way, that in and of itself would be a light to the nations. They would be drawn to that. So do you consider all of God's precepts concerning all things to be right? If so, it'll put you at odds with this world and often at odds with other Christians. But going along with what is popular, following the flow is dangerous. Even dead fish swim with the current. It's not necessarily where you want to be. Instead, according to what the psalmist says here, we are to hate every false way. That's the flip side of loving God's law, hating every false way. Calvin notes that it's not up to us to divide God's law into things I like and things I don't like, things I'm going to obey and things I'm not going to obey. So let me ask the question this way. If hating sin was the sole measure of a Christian, would you be identifiably Christian? Yes, we all know we are told that they will know we are Christians by our love, but would they know you are a Christian by your hate? It's the flip side of love. Our wills need to be engaged wholly in obeying God's law. Solomon writes in Proverbs, he says, My son, give me your heart. Our heart, our will, needs to be given to God. And then obedience that flows out of that heart, that's what God's looking for. Well, hopefully those verses from Psalm 119 are a challenge and an encouragement to us this morning. We've been talking about this particular principle that in Christ, the ceremonial law is still valid today. This is the last Sunday I want to deal with this particular principle. And the reason I'm taking several Sundays on this one is because there's several different kinds of ceremonial laws and it's helpful for us to see each one and in what way it's still valid today. Now, yes, as we've said all along, it is right to say that the ceremonial law is done away with in one sense. The rituals are done away with. They're gone. But in another sense, it's still valid today. All of the aspects of the ceremonial law were ultimately pointing us to Christ. He fulfills those things. And he's still fulfilling those things on our behalf today. So the law underneath the law is still in force. The outward rituals have changed. But what those rituals were communicating all along is still there. So just by way of review really quickly, the law underneath the law, what we, what we mean by that is just that's God's character. It's his, his attributes. It's, it's who he is. And because he's the one that made the world, the world is what it is because God is who he is. It works the way it does because of God's character and his nature. When Jesus is asked what's the greatest commandment, the greatest law, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So we boil that down to loving God and loving others. That's what the law is all about. Law and love are not contradictory. They are partners. The true understanding of law is love. The right understanding of how to love is obedience to law. What does that look like, to love God and love others? Well, it looks like the Ten Commandments. Don't have other gods before me. Don't take my name in vain. That's loving God. Don't steal from people. Don't murder people. That's loving people. Love God and love others looks like the Ten Commandments. And then, what does it look like when a whole society lives that way? It looks like the civil law. This is how those Ten Commandments play out in the life of a people. 
But what happens when they don't? What happens when someone steals? Well, the case laws teach us then about restitution and the proper penalties and how to make things right. On this side of things, the ceremonial law is teaching us what happens to the relationship with God when sin happens, when law is broken. And this is teaching us what God is doing to restore that. And it comes in several aspects. Laws of separation, like we talked about last time, those were the the things that made God's people distinct. Dietary laws and things like that. And we saw how all of that is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And we are still to be a distinct people today. That the principle of that law remains, even though the outward rituals have changed. Laws of temple worship, that's things like sacrifices and priests and the day of atonement. We talked about all of those things, how those point us to Jesus. And we don't make those sacrifices, but the reason we don't make those sacrifices is because our one final sacrifice has been made. That's Jesus. It's not that the principle of a blood sacrifice is gone. It's that we have one in Christ. And then finally, festivals and holidays. And this is how the cycle of time and what God asked his people to do in celebrating these things also was pointing to Jesus. And so that's what we're going to touch on just briefly today for one example. And so I'll ask you to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 23. Turn in your Bible to Leviticus 23. And what you'll see in this chapter is all of the different feasts and festivals that kind of make up the calendar year for God's people. Leviticus 23. So just look at the very beginning of it, verses 1 and 2 to start with. And here's what it says, Leviticus 23, 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. So these are ceremonial laws that are required by God, but they're different from the moral laws and the civil laws. And one of the ways that they're different is that there's no civil enforcement. The only exception to this is the Sabbath which is one of the Ten Commandments. Other than that, God reserves the enforcement of these laws completely for himself. So that teaches us something. We should not try to enforce God's laws when he hasn't given us the authority to enforce them. We would be playing God. He's given us different spheres of authority. There's the family, there's the church, there's the state, and they're not to step on each other's toes. And then there's laws like this that God reserves for himself. The Lord can run the world all by himself without unasked for help from us. And the religious days in the calendar, these are feasts, they're they're seen as a privilege. They're privileged participations. They're not penalties. And so the person who obeys these laws is being blessed by God, not penalized by him. Non-participation is, in a sense, its own penalty. You're missing out. You know, that's, that's kind of the way these were handled. Now, there were certain aspects of this that when Israel didn't do it for a long time, God did bring enforcement. For example, one of the, one of the ones that's not found here in Leviticus 23, but the year of Jubilee, God enforced that because Israel didn't obey it so many times that the exile was itself a forced year of Jubilee for the land because Israel didn't do it for themselves. And so God will reserve the enforcement of these things for himself. He'll do it. 
in his timing when it's appropriate. It's not something we need to enforce. But it is something that's given to us as a privilege, he says. So let's look at this because we don't do these rituals today. So how do they actually apply to us? Well, what I want to do is just like in a summary form, zip through all of these and then camp out on one towards the end. Okay. So the first one you see there, verses three and or verse three, is the Sabbath. The theme of the Sabbath is rest. We rest from our labors like God did on the seventh day of creation. He rested from his labors. And that is pointing us to the fact that we don't work for our salvation because Jesus has done the work for us. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Sabbath Hebrews 4.9 says that whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works the way that God rested from his works. So I don't have to work for my salvation. I rest from it and I rest in the trust that Jesus has done it for me. The second one that you see there in the passage is the Passover. Let that go. And the Passover happens once a year. This is the commemoration of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. So if you're looking for a theme, the theme of the Passover is deliverance. And the blood of the Passover lamb is spread on the doorway over of the homes of the Israelites to show them to, to show faith that they were covered by the blood. They've done what God said. So when the death angel came, he would pass over their house because he saw the blood. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. He is our Passover lamb. His blood redeems us. It delivers us from the power and penalty of sin. The next one you see there, starting in verse 9, is the Feast of Firstfruits. The theme of this is the promise of the harvest. So when the first part of the harvest was ready, that very first harvest that was brought in was given to God as a sign of faith that the rest of the harvest would follow. God would provide what they need. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have died in the Lord. In other words, when Jesus is raised from the dead, his resurrection is the beginning of the harvest and there's more to come. It's the promise that there's more to follow. In other words, one day we will be raised to new life just like Jesus. Then you see beginning in verse 15, the Feast of Weeks. So if the theme of first fruits is the promise of the harvest, the theme of the Feast of Weeks is the fulfillment of the harvest. So, and it's specifically talking about the wheat harvest at this point. So 50 days after Passover, at the climax of the wheat harvest, that's when the Feast of Weeks takes place. Now, Acts 2 tells the story of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the church after Jesus had ascended. And verse 1 begins, and when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. Pentecost is another name for the Feast of Weeks. So this is literally 50 days after Jesus' death. And the Holy Spirit is poured out on people from every nation. The gospel is now going to the nations. In other words, the harvest is being fulfilled. One more interesting parallel there. The original day of Pentecost is marking the giving of the law at Sinai. At that time, when Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law, what are the people doing? They're worshiping the golden calf. You remember the results of that, because of their disobedience, 3,000 people are killed. Well, at the day of Pentecost, it's the giving of the Spirit, and the result is that 3,000 people are saved. The next feast that you see there in this passage in Leviticus 23, 
starting in verse 23, is the Feast of Trumpets. And the theme of this feast is repentance. This feast doesn't get a whole lot of explanation in Scripture, but it seems to be that the trumpet blast is a call for the people to gather for repentance. It's the beginning of the agricultural year. It comes 10 days before the Day of Atonement, so it's an appropriate time to be demonstrating repentance. Jesus, in his ministry, calls for repentance. He especially calls Israel to repentance. And then the next thing on the agenda is the Day of Atonement, the provision that is made there. And so you see that beginning in verse 26. And the theme of the Day of Atonement is reconciliation with God. It's the one day when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or the temple. We've talked about this before. The two goats are sacrificed. One goat's blood is taken into the Holy of Holies to atone for sin. The other goat symbolically has the sins of the people placed on it and is sent out into the wilderness. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that Day of Atonement. He's the final sacrifice that atones for our sins. He's the great high priest who goes in and represents us before God. And that's a ministry that he is carrying on right now on our behalf today. And then the last one on the agenda here is the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles. And so this is the one that I want us to take a look at for a couple of minutes this morning. Leviticus 23, starting in verse 39. So just go ahead and follow along uh, as I read this. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you've gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It's a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths, or tabernacles, for seven days, all native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. So the practice here, the way that you celebrate this feast, is you travel to Jerusalem and you live on the countryside, on the hillside outside of Jerusalem. You build a tent out of plants. And the idea of this is you're calling to mind the fact that you, in Israel's history, they lived in temporary shelters when they were brought out of Egypt. But the, the symbolism here is also kind of pointing you back to the Garden of Eden because it's all about fruitfulness and plants and God's provision for them. The idea is trust in God. Harvest, you know, would be a prime time for thieves to come in and steal your stuff. But what does God do? He says, leave your stuff at home and come to Jerusalem. Leave it unprotected. And God actually says in Exodus 34, when you do this, he says, no one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. God actually says, I am going to restrain the hearts and wills of these pagan people so that they won't want your stuff while you're obeying me in Jerusalem. It's a reminder of Eden and things being the way that they're supposed to be. You're living in these booths, not inside the protection of a walled city. 
This is a time of peace and prosperity, like the prophets spoke about so much. Micah prophesied a day when swords would be beaten into plowshares because peace would reign. Haggai talked about the conversion of the nations so that the treasures of all the nations would be, would be brought in like a harvest. You don't have to fear from the nations if the nations are coming to be part of you. Zechariah prophesied of the conversion of the nations too and how all these different areas of life would be made holy. Now there's some other symbolism here as well that I want to just kind of take us through on our way to to get to the conclusion here. So bear with me for a minute. In Exodus chapter 15, we have the story of Israel coming to Elam. It says, there they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. This is important enough that we get the same story again in Numbers 33. At Elam, there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they camped there. So you have palm trees that are being watered by these springs of water. The springs of water are what feed the palm trees so that they can grow there in the wilderness. But the numbers are important, 12 and 70. There's a pattern here, this 12 and 70 pattern. Israel was organized into 12 tribes that were led by 70 elders. Seventy is the number of the nations at the Tower of Babel. Genesis 10, when that story is given, we get the table of nations. There's 70 nations. So 70 becomes the number that kind of represents the nations throughout Scripture. Jesus has a pattern of 12 and 70 as well. In Luke chapter 10, there's some translation issue between 70 and 72. So your translation might say 72 instead of 70. I think it's supposed to be 70. But Jesus has 12 disciples. And then in Luke 10, we have the story of him sending out the 70 who go out as missionaries. So they're going out with the good news of the kingdom. 12 and 70. Now hold that thought in the back of your mind and look with me at John chapter 7. Because this is where we see Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, John chapter 7. There's part of the ceremony that Israel developed at the, on the last day of the feast, there would be water that was poured out on the ground. And it was symbolizing this, the the pouring out of God's spirit and the peace and prosperity that would come someday. And so when that happens, that's the scene where we're going to read of what Jesus says in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. John chapter 7, look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So when Jesus says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, it's his heart that that's talking about. Out of Jesus' heart will flow rivers of living water, and he says this about the Spirit of God, Jesus is going to pour out the Spirit of God, and this is what's going to bring the eternal life. It's going to bring the the new life, the peace and the prosperity that's being symbolized right there in Jerusalem as the water is poured out on this last day of the feast. You might kind of 
remember in your mind, we've talked about Ezekiel 47 and that vision of the end times temple. And remember what happens in that temple, the water starts trickling out from inside and it goes over the threshold of the door and it goes out. And as it goes farther and farther, it gets deeper and deeper until it becomes this big river that nobody can even cross. And it goes all the way down to the salt sea and it brings life to the salt sea. And now there's all kinds of fish and all kinds of life there. That's a picture of the Spirit. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says rivers of living water. He says, I'm going to pour that out. And then you might remember that Jesus says, it's better for you that I go away after his resurrection because until I go, the Spirit can't come. I'm going to ascend and I'm going to pour out the Spirit. All of that is what Jesus is kind of pointing at here. Now, In Acts chapter 2, we see that happening. And I I won't make you turn there, but in Acts 2, Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit. And what we are told there is that devout men from every nation under heaven heard the message in their own language. How did we get nations with all these different languages? Tower of Babel. The 70. The 70 nations. Now we have the reverse of this. Just like those 12 springs of water fed, gave life to the 70 palm trees at Elam. Just like Jesus has the 12 and the 70 that he sends out. Just like this feast was promising the the conversion of the nations one day. All of that comes together now as Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit and devout men from every nation on earth hear it in their own language. You see what's happening? It's Babel being reversed, being undone. What's the point? The point is that God's people are a nation of priests. They're the light of the world. They're the ones who are supposed to bring the gospel of the kingdom to the world. Just like Jesus sent out the 70, that was the role of Israel all along, was to be a light to the nations. Why is God's law such a good thing? Because the nations will see it. They'll see you obeying it and they'll they'll be drawn to the Lord. So Exodus 19, Israel was told, if indeed you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you'll be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you'll be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Priests represent someone. The high priest was representing the nation. Well, if the whole nation is a nation of priests, who are they representing? They're representing the rest of the world. And so Peter picks up that same language and he says it to you, church. 1 Peter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And when that happens, then all of the stuff that comes along with the the description of the Feast of Tabernacles or booths becomes a reality. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like the crocus, Isaiah says. It'll blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. This Eden-like language is describing that time of peace and prosperity. You don't need to live in walled cities anymore. And things will be blessed because of the obedience that the nations have to God's law. 
Isaiah describes in Isaiah 65 the new heavens and the new earth. Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel writes about it. He says, God's people will dwell securely in the wilderness and they'll sleep in the woods. God will send showers of blessing. The trees will yield their fruit. The earth will yield its increase. They'll be secure in the land. They will no longer be attacked by the nations. They'll dwell securely and not be afraid. No more hunger, no more reproach. God will be their shepherd. All of that is going to happen as God's law goes out to the world, as the nations are converted, as more and more people believe and obey God's word. It's all fulfillment of the tabernacle's imagery. Plants and unwalled cities, blessing and security, and Jesus is the one who brings it about. So, do we spend a week each year living in plant booths? No. We struggle to have a church camping trip and stay in tents and survive that. But the reality that this was pointing to has not changed. It is fulfilled in Christ when Christ pours out the Spirit on his people. And that reality is still being fulfilled today. The reality under the ritual is still true. The law underneath the law is still valid. As we wrap this up, think about this. This calendar design that God gives, it's all part of his plan. He designs this. This is God's predestination, his providence. It's, It's his plan. And not only does he have the plan, he has the power to carry it out. His sovereign working of history brings Jesus at just the right time to fulfill the Feast of Booths, to ascend into heaven and to pour out the Spirit on his people. If God can do that, you can trust him. If God can plan all of that and work human history in such a way as to unfold all of them. He has the power to carry it out. You can believe his word. When he says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. When you're facing the times of affliction and difficulty, like the psalmist said in Psalm 119, you can remember that God has the power to deal with the affliction. He may not do it right away. He may do it at a time that's better in his sovereign wisdom, but he will do it and he can do it. You can trust him. The God who could take this entire calendar setup and all of these feasts and and, and, and write that story into Israel's very yearly existence and then make it all happen, that's a God you can trust. Ultimately, God's purpose in that is to glorify Christ. But he does that by the salvation of his people. You and I are wrapped up in that. We we receive this blessing of being part of what God is doing in glorifying Christ. So, as we look at God's law and you read the, the ceremonial law and you look at the calendar set up and you say, oh, man, I'm glad we don't have to like do all of that stuff anymore today. There is a sense in which, yes, we can be glad that we don't have to do all the stuff today. 
all the rituals are gone because they've been fulfilled in Christ. But at the same time, I want you to see that God's telling you something in those. He's pointing you to Christ. And the reality that those things were communicating, that reality is still true today. And as God's people, we need to understand that in that sense, God's law is still valid today, even the ceremonial law. The reality that it's pointing to is still true. And the God who does all of that is a God you can trust today. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we recognize that uh, at our point in, in history, a couple of thousand years after the time of Christ, what we read in the pages of, of Scripture seems very foreign and distant. We don't carry out all of those rituals today, and we don't live in the same patterns that they did. And yet you've included those things in your word for a reason. You're telling us something about yourself. You're telling us something about what Christ has accomplished. May we have ears to hear. May you give us understanding. May we live as your people, faithfully trusting you, being a light to the nations as Israel was intended. We have that same job today to be that nation of priests, to be the light to the world, to live a holy life as your people. May the life that we live together be the kind of life that embodies your law and that people look at and go, wow, what people has a God like that? What people live in such a wise way as that? And may you draw people to yourself as we live in faithfulness to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.